Welcome to Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. I'm glad you can join us. Please do subscribe to this podcast and love to hear some feedback or some ideas on what you want featured. We talk development in the Apple space, primarily Swift and iPhone, iPad, Mac, watch. Maybe we'll do an episode on TV. If anybody wants me to do an episode on TV, reach out to me. We'll see for the five developers out there that dedicate themselves to the TV apps. Today we have with us Alex Bush. Alex, welcome on. It's glad to have you back again. How are things going with your podcast? Pretty good. Things are slowing down a little because I'm actually busy with like life moving. And I also have a, I'm working on a screencast about a ribs architecture. So that's taken a lot of my time. But other than that, good. Yeah. So this year, this is our first episode of 2020. I've ended my other podcast. I'm really pumping up the episodes for next year. I'm going to start doing three episodes a month, just in case listeners are interested. So one on the first Sunday, I release them pretty much on Sundays because I found that's the best time for downloads. So I'll do one first Sunday, last Sunday, and whatever the middle Sunday of that month is. How have you found as far as like scheduling, recording, and, and growing your audience? How's that worked out for you? It's... uh. I guess when I had my routine that I was used to, I was like back in San Francisco. It was more consistent and easier to do. Basically, we would do like batch recording of like two, three ep- or even four sometimes episodes in one Saturday. Get together, uh, do, yep. do that. And then the only challenge after that is just allocate time, either myself or my co-host to like edit them. Gotcha. Other than that, though, we would consistently, more or less consistently, put out every two weeks an episode. That was a good cadence for us because we started with one week, like an episode per week. That was too much, too much work, too often. And sort of the content we're, we're doing is it needs prep occasionally. And, and it's just hard to have that cadence. So once in bi-weekly was good for us. Yeah, I think you can put too much content and there's only so much you can talk about. So it's either you like make the episodes shorter and release them more often or you release them bigger episodes less frequently. So you have inside iOS dev, what kind of content have you seen really attracts people, especially with your your LinkedIn stuff and your Twitter stuff when it comes to the courses? That kind of drive the most traffic and get the most listens are either very deep, nitty-gritty details of like implementation details at, well, let's say Reddit, right? For example, that's that's Andrew, my co-host, works there. Uh, a few episodes where mm-hmm. he kind of talked through how they were building features or, or certain parts okay. of their uh, code base. That was apparently very interesting to uh, our listeners. So that got a lot of low uh, listens. And then another sort of similar type, but another example would be, I think, an episode that I published about asynchronous development and asynchronous everything on iOS, sort of an overview, what options do you have Mm -hmm. and pros and cons of each. Like, I don't know, start with uh, an SURL session as like a built-in black box. But then if you want to go low level, Grand Central Dispatch, or if you want to go higher level, NS separations and, and so on, so on. So that also got a lot of traffic. But then another type that was surprising to us that got a 
maybe even more downloads was actually more personal episodes where like Andrew and I, we just, you know, didn't prep really. And we, we didn't teach as much, right? It wasn't like educational content. We just talked about, uh, it was after WWDC and everyone was on the hype uh, train of uh, Swift UI and Combine. Right. And we were like, guys, we're tired. This is like yet again, <laughs> same old thing that we read about many years ago in, in old books, right? Combine and reactive stuff is not new and, and so on. So that, that actually resonated with people because we got a lot of tweets and, and emails saying, oh, yeah, we're tired learning new stuff every year, too. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. And I think like the highly opinionated stuff is super helpful to people and really attracts folks. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe we'll, we'll do more of that. <laughs> Although it's, it's, it's kind of harder to plan, if you will, right? Yeah, exactly. So speaking of highly opinionated, we wanted to do an episode this week. What we wish for as far as 2020 for developers. So this could be things that they can improve over the year. But most likely, it's just going to come in June because everything comes in June, gets dumped on us in June. So I think that that's what we wanted to do today is kind of go over what our wish list is for 2020, what we hope Apple improves as far as the development process, but also App Store and other, other features as well. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. All right, let's do this. To me, like 99% of my time is going to be spelled in Xcode. And so that's where I see my biggest bang for my buck, where I'd like to see most of the improvements done. And specifically, I would like improvements made to how Swift development works on Xcode. And that would be this autocomplete refactoring, things like that. Specifically, anything built around source kit, right? which is the bread and butter of what Xcode runs to get Swift going. Mm -hmm. That to me is like the biggest improvement because I don't know about you, but everything from ambiguous errors to just things not working, how many times I've gotten it to where it says, oh, there is an error. You have to restart Xcode. Maybe even getting like playgrounds to work a lot better in Xcode would be a big thing because sometimes I just want to run like a little bit of code to just figure out how to get something working before I put it into uh, production. Things like that like are big improvements I would really, really want to see when it comes to Xcode. I would say for me, sort of two things that I would love them to improve would be the one thing especially that I do the most and I would, would, would think every developer's, developer does the most is browsing the code, right? So currently... I personally use a lot that, what was that shortcut? Uh, Lookup calls. It was a control shift command H, something like that. Mm -hmm. so when, when you hover over or put your cursor on a method and then, you know, you hit that shortcut and it's, it shows you the list of where it was called in the code base. The problem with it, it's not as smart, right? So right. if you're looking up sort of from the implementation rather than the protocol declaration of that method, then it's not going to show any because then what it looks up is the by the type. So like little things like that, they just, you know, add up time-wise and kind of are annoying. I wish they would, you know, improve. Yeah, I mean, the fired references stuff is like pretty dumb. Like there's not a lot to it. I think it's all it is is just finding text within your project. What other coding things would you like improved in Xcode? 
so I mean, overall, like auto completion is, I don't know, to me is all right. I don't have much to ask for there. Well, except it crashes some of the time. Oh, really? Yeah. Like you don't get that word like you do dot or you do period and nothing shows up for you in Xcode. And then it's like all your text highlighting is lost and you have to restart Xcode. Oh, yeah. Well, I do get those all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's just like a normal state of being, right? I'm oh, used, that's so sad. It. It's like the <laughs> Stockholm syndrome, right? I like it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. And I always assume like, oh, I'm in a huge code base, right? It's sort of not normal for not everyone experiences that. That is true. But I mean, like, it doesn't have to be that large of a code base for it to like start acting up. That's the pain that I run into. And it's like, especially, uh, you know, you might not like it, but I have been doing a lot of Swift UI and combine. And like, <laughs> I don't know 90% of these APIs very well. I'll be honest with you. Right. They're not documented very well, which we had talked about previously in another episode. So it's like, I just want autocomplete to tell me what I can do with a lot of the user interface and when it comes to like setting up my view in Swift UI and like autocomplete is the best way to do that. So it's like autocomplete, it's one of the big improvements to coding I've seen in the last 20 years. And if that doesn't work sometimes in Xcode with new APIs, it, it can be a real headache. That's a good point. Yeah. You know what I really would want to have? And that's never going to happen. What's that? That's a sort of a, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Like a pet feature, if you will, of mine that I really love. Vim support for the editor. Vim support. Okay, so give me the use case of why you use Vim. So I currently use XWim on every stable. They, they usually catch up pretty quick, every stable release of Xcode. And okay. I am not a hardcore power user at all of Vim. But I do use sort of lightly the features it gives you, like quick navigation, jumping up and mm -hmm. top and bottom of the file, jumping multiple lines. Yes. Or like quickly replacing or copy pasting something with like several, you know, just a few keystrokes. You do multi lines or things like that. That's what I use. And yeah, it just it works better for me than scrolling and doing the normal shortcuts like option and arrow keys, right? To jump between words. I sympathize with Vim and I see why people use it, especially not having to put your hand on a mouse. Like I totally get it. Like you want to be super fast, but I've always found it to be like a really big learning curve to get good, like really good at it. But once you get it, yeah, it totally makes sense. Like, okay, colon this colon one, colon G, whatever you need to do as far as Vim is concerned to like traverse your code. But I find myself just always wanting to like use the mouse to like right click on something or to like do any sort of special commands. Well, don't get me wrong. I still do that. And this is why I say I'm a, I'm a light Vim user rather than like advanced. And it, you know, honestly, actually, that is what I like with that XVim extension. You get best of both worlds. I get a little bit of my Vim commands, but then I still, when I'm in, in insert mode, it's basically plain old Xcode stuff, right? So I, I have yeah. both, and I actually constantly switch between them. And then the other day, I've done some Ruby development, and I switched completely to like Vim Vim in terminal. Oh my God, that was a pain. Right, right. Because I still want my little like, Command right arrow to get to the end of the line, right? It, that's easier for me to do than do the, what is it, the dollar sign or whatnot. And then switch to insert mode. It's like a bit more work. 
So yeah, that combination, right? And I just wish it was uh, natively supported by Xcode rather than being this hacky plugging thing. I don't even know how they make it happen. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I wonder if I used XVim before. I know I've used like a Vim extension for Sublime Text, mm -hmm. but yeah. Uh, well, so what's the likelihood that's going to be? Oh, yeah, that's zero. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's just, uh, it, you know, I wish, but. I wish. We can wish. That's what this episode is all about. <laughs> so the other, we've talked a lot about the code refactoring. I actually use been using that more. I feel like it's improved in Xcode 11, but I still feel like I wish there was some better support for like, especially stuff that encourages protocol-oriented programming and encourages good patterns. I think that's where refactoring would really be helpful. That's actually funny you mentioned that. I just realized, oh, they, I guess they added some features and improved it. That's one of those Stockholm syndromes kind of things where it was not there for so many years. I just, mm -hmm. I stopped even wishing for that, right? Even thinking that I could do that. So one of the things I could see Apple doing when it comes to Xcode is kind of doing what they did with Objective-C and with UIKit and AppKit and iTunes. Follow me through this. I think they should just build a new IDE from scratch. <laughs> that's essentially what they've done before. Like that seems like a pattern from Apple, right? To where it's like they try to add things and add things to iTunes or Objective-C or to UIKit or to AppKit to make it quote unquote modern. And then they get to a certain point that they're just like, screw it. Here's a music app. Here's Swift. Here's Swift UI. We realize that like we need something brand new. And I almost feel like Xcode is kind of at that point to where it's like, seriously, there's so much legacy support in Xcode for like C++ or C or Objective-C, which maybe there's a use case for it. But 99% of the time, people are just going to be writing iPhone apps with it and using Swift. That would be ideal, just a brand new IDE that's completely Swift-based that simplifies a lot of that stuff down and like focuses on the things that developers really need. So, so uh, shall we say Swifty code or something? Yeah, there you go. Or Swift code. <laughs> exactly. But does that make sense? Yeah, it does, actually. Might be a good fresh start. You're right. WWC 2021 or 22. Here's Swift code for your new ARM-based MacBook Pro. And it might make sense, actually, now I think about it, if they eventually want to put Xcode on iPad, that might make even more sense if they right. do it via the, the, what is it, the Catalyst? Right? Is that the name? Yes, Catalyst. But then you need still need to support Xcode project, the whole XML right. thing, right? So that goes to another thing I wanted to talk about, which we haven't gotten to, but we will, is like, if there was a way you could build actual apps, like actual iPhone and watch apps, for instance, because you could do a command line tool, but actual apps using a Swift package. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. there's a lot of cruft that you need with Xcode, like assets and info plists and things like that that aren't really built into a Swift package. But if you could like take a whole app and use a Swift package to actually build an app, I think that would be a huge improvement as well. I actually totally agree. Yeah, that, that's one of those things I wish. Actually, this one I think might happen eventually. So the whole, the nature of Swift package manager is that, that there's this declaration file, configuration file, right? And that's where everything is. And you explicitly put things there. There's nothing like by default, 
unexpected hidden by the UI, right? Like like we have an Xcode project. It's like it's just so many gazillion of those settings right. that I have no idea what most of them do, to be honest. Have you heard of Xcode Gen? Yeah, actually, we use it at work. Yes, by Yanis uh, uh, Kolb. It is awesome. Like I want to switch everything over to that and just have all of my Xcode projects generated at build time. Because Xcode projects to me, this is another thing that I'm going to ask for. Xcode projects to me are almost as bad as a storyboard in the sense that right. like, if you have two people editing a project, you can actually merge it. It's not horrible, but it's still... Xcode projects are a whole weird markup language that, that makes no sense to anybody except for Xcode. But what Xcode Gen does, you can basically set up your Xcode project in YAML. And it's YAML, which is super simple. And then it'll generate the Xcode project for you and then build that out. So I wish that Xcode projects would be a lot more simple in that way to where anybody like can get a text editor and edit a project and edit settings without having to deal with the headache of Xcode. Yeah, previous company I worked at, we used Buck. Okay. So that's a Facebook tool for like large, large projects, but similar idea. You have your okay. declaration. It's more a folder structure, like relies on the folder structure, but in each folder where you have a Buck file, in that Buck file, you declare what it's basically effectively making it a little module. And then you say, oh, it depends on this and this and this. And then to generate final Xcode project, you run buck command and it will go traverse the tree of your folders, figure out all the dependencies, resolved, resolve versions and stuff like that, and then generate the final, final Xcode project for you. It's fantastic. What's it called? How do you spell it? Buck. B-U-C-K. If you Google like Facebook buck, you'll find it. And that's for both Android and... Yes. It's for a lot of things. I think you can do like other projects too. But yeah, iOS and Android, fantastic. A bit bulky, like it's another DSL to learn, of course, right? Right. But it's a DSL that's simpler than Xcode projects. That, and it really, really works for large teams where it's like, yeah. those bug files are your source of truth now. And that's what goes into your GitHub. And the generated Xcode project is actually, you might not even want to check it in, to be honest. It's like, it's not important. And that's what I've been doing with Xcode Gen is just putting my Xcode project like under a git ignore file because it's not worth it to me as far as that's concerned. What other things do you want to talk about when it comes to Xcode? Because I have more. Unit tests. I just want sort of a better... It's not Xcode specifically, actually, support or improvements that I want. I want command line improvements. Like I want to actually decouple off of... Xcode UI as much as possible. For example, one thing I really liked in Ruby World, and I we don't get to have something like that, or at least not out of out of the box, was uh, Guard. So basically, Guard is it's a Ruby gem, and you run a little mini server thingy that observes your project files, and every time your project files change, meaning you like make a change and then save them, right? It will rerun all of your tests. Or it will target specifically if it's smart enough to figure out, let's say you changed a interactor file or presenter file, it will find the respective interactor tests file and run tests, run that one, tests in that file only. So you constantly know when your tests, uh, you know, pass or fail, right? Mm, interesting. 
So basically, like you want Xcode to constantly run unit tests as you make changes, or rather terminal, right? Like, sure, Xcode could do that if like they build it in, but I'd rather even have it in a terminal so I have more control. So like a watch, basically, like it just okay, interesting. I mean, that goes to a whole thing about like how much I wish that things could be pushed to command line. Basically, what Fastlane is trying to do, but in a much better, more integrated way, I guess to put it. I totally agree with you on that. The other thing I wanted to mention was built-in server-side Swift support. I want that. It's kind of works, but I want it to be much easier to like start a project and get going with server-side Swift and have some of that stuff in Xcode. And then we've kind of approved things with Swift package support. We did an episode with Abby Jackson on that about some of the ways Xcode helps you organize projects and workspaces. But I think continuing the modularization of code and making that easier in Xcode would be a big improvement. So lastly, the last thing I want to mention about Xcode is stuff that we hate to deal with, but we always have to deal with App Store Connect and certs and provisioning profiles. That could be improved in Xcode. I wish there was like a native app to deal with that stuff. And it was more integrated with Xcode, but that I think is a thing that could be improved upon. I would actually argue more for a command line push on that one as well. Kind of like what Fastlane okay. does now. And I know no, they yeah, just yeah, yeah. hide it for you, right? Like behind the scenes, the, the Ruby gems that they have there actually go and click on the links on the website for you. <laughs> but, you know, if it's like natively made by Apple via like a proper HTTP API, right? Mm -hmm. That would be way better. Yeah. You have here in the notes, command line hooks and improvements. What do you mean by that? I guess I meant this, for example, that unit testing one, right, that we talked about. Okay. Just sort of in general, push everything more towards command line, like build as well, right? I know that there is a source kit, right, and sorcery and all of those projects to kind of get, analyze code, I guess, Swift source code. Mm -hmm. So I would want more of that, but be exposed via terminal again, right? So that I can run my build commands from terminal and it will give me a better sort of reporting back if something didn't compile, right? What was the error? What was the problem? Kind of all the things that Xcode today shows for us, those little snippets, tidbits of like, Oh, I don't know this type, right? Like mm -hmm. that's not declared. Give me that, but in terminal, so that I either just use my terminal for that, or maybe I build my own ID around it. Right, right. Okay, I gotcha. So that would open up this whole again. If they give you the APIs via terminal, then it opens up this whole world of oh, people will go nuts and build lots of IDs, which is competition, which is great for us. We will have better tools. Yeah, I totally agree. Have you looked at the Swift scripting stuff as far as like Swift SH or any of that? Not yet. Not yet. I I think, yeah, I know there were improvements, but last time I checked, which was a couple of years ago, unfortunately, it wasn't there, right? Yeah, there's some decent tooling out there as far as like running Swift, like a bash script, for instance. I feel like that's gotten pretty darn good and I've been able to do like a lot with that when I needed like just a quick script. 
And I want to do it in Swift as opposed to Bash, uh, for instance. Mm -hmm. Did you have any other thoughts as far as improvements to that being made? No, actually, but the, yeah, I mean, you kind of reminded me about the command line support and scripting support. I, I would love to see that. Like, I know today you already can do it. You can build command line apps. But this whole step of, like, generating Xcode project and then there's an extra step between you running a command line command that would be your Swift binary thing and then getting that input in your app. Right. There's a distance there that kind of is a yep. friction, right? So if that would be improved and I could like, again, like in the Ruby world, I could do type IRB and then it opens my REPL, right? That, that interpreter. And then I just type stuff and it executes those Ruby commands right away. That would be fantastic. Because then it's again, it will popularize Swift even more as a utility tool, meaning more people use it. Maybe right. we'll, we'll get server-side Swift improved because of that as well. Like I actually already see at work, we have a few, I was so surprised, pleasantly surprised to see a few command lines, like utility for our project command line tasks done using Swift code. That's awesome. Yeah, I was like, oh, great. I can actually read that. And I even can't even change it. <laughs> and it would compile and actually tell me, like, of course, it's not unit tests, right? But it's still at least compiler check. Yep. Trying to think what else as far as Xcode. I don't want them to improve asset management because I like my app Speculate and it works <laughs> for resizing graphics. So they don't have to do anything with that. Right. <laughs> if you need to resize your icons or graphics from SVG, that app works pretty darn well, and I've been using that. So let's get into Swift UI. Because you're a big fan of Swift UI, right? I like dream every day <laughs> to like rewrite everything in it. <laughs> no. <laughs> what could they improve as far as like UI development on Xcode or Swift? For you, because you don't like... Swift UI, correct? So, so okay, let, let me say this. It's not that I don't like it per se. It's more of a, like, I know what it's going to bring to our whole developer community. It's going to bring this notion that we can do all the JavaScript stuff, such as Redux and, and all of those things, because people think it's made to support that. It's not actually. It's more of an MVVM binding type of thing like Microsoft has. Mm -hmm. Right. But we'll see where it goes. And um, I think it's an improvement overall. Let, let, let me say this, right? It's an improvement overall. It's better than auto layout. And um, I actually honestly wish Apple would just drop auto layout. That's been the source of my pain for years. I understand that doing frames, as was before we were doing just frames, is even worse. But there are alternatives, right? You could go about it differently, such as like having a flexbox model. And Texture Project is a great example of that implementation on iOS. It works fantastic. Unfortunately, this is a third-party project on top of Apple's UI kit, which means it's a bit bulkier and it's, again, yet another DSL for you to learn. People don't want to. But as a mental model, from my perspective, the flexbox mental model is more intuitive and kind of clear to most developers. It's way, kind of, you make way less errors overall because things as you would work likely as you expect, where without a layout, you think it would do what you think it would do, but it doesn't quite often. How much have you dabbled into like Swift UI? Very little. Yeah. 
I mean, the one thing that I'll say, like you said, it's a big improvement. It's, is it ready? No, I don't think it's ready unless you don't mind taking that risk that it's brand new. But it's such a big improvement over like storyboards or even coding UIs in the sense that you're using kind of a markup language Mm -hmm. for building your UI. And I think that's the big improvement to it. I think they could add more support for other widgets for sure in the next version, like collections. We don't have any collection view controller, more or less, in SwiftUI. The previews, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I wish it'd be a lot faster. That's the big thing. And then trying to think what else but like swift ui i think it's a big improvement i think i use it for a lot of like newer stuff that i don't really care too much about supporting old technologies but at the same time i think it's good there's going to be big changes in june probably improvements when it comes to that likely yeah i wonder how they're gonna go about it like at some point they'll just have to sort of stop ui kit support completely i think it's going to be a long time though i think we're talking like half a decade yeah before they strap support on UI kit necessarily. But yeah. Right now, the whole model is still, even if you're going all in Swift UI 100%, as far as I understand it, still you have to be in the, like the origin of your application is still a UI kit object. Right. It's a UI hosting controller, correct? Exactly. And then you do that thing as your entry point. Right. Eh, it's odd. <laughs> yeah. We'll see, like, it's going to take a couple OSs before they can, like, really get rid of needing that scaffolding, so to speak. Right. What do you see as missing in SwiftUI for, like, your rib architecture, for instance? So far, nothing. I mean, that's that's okay. the beauty of ribs and Viper and all the clean architectures. It just has a view layer that could be replaced. It doesn't matter okay. how you do it. You could do it with frames, SwiftUI, whatever. Yeah. So, in a lot of ways, like, as long as I can support some of the widgets and maybe a couple of years, a couple more operating system versions, I think SwiftUI will be ready for development. So here's the thing about it, though. We actually had a discussion about it yesterday at work. So we use Viper, and um, it supports this use case perfectly. And we're actually testing out on a small, small, tiny feature. We're testing out two implementations side by side, the old UIKit one for UI and then SwiftUI Mm. one, right? So the newer, it's the if available iOS 13 check, right? The new users, iOS 13 and, and up users will get the Swift UI, right? Mm-hmm. So that works perfectly. Like you still have your presenter. It's just passes data down and then your view right. is just your view is different. Right. But it doesn't matter which implementation to it. And then in your interactor, your router, everything up the chain, doesn't care. It doesn't even know. doesn't matter. Right. But the danger, what we're like contemplating right now and trying to figure out, and that's, I think, the problem with SwiftUI, right? I guess not SwiftUI itself, but what it brings and encourages. But then now people start to say, oh, but we can't do the bindings there, right? How do we expose bindings, I guess, up or higher up in our presenter, but then to iOS 13 users only because it can be available for previous versions. And that's where it starts like creeping into your code base. It's like, God damn it. So you're talking like... Like combined yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Let's get into that. But like you have some data model set up and you need to wrap it in like an environment object of some sort or like a... That's where you're seeing the biggest headache. Yep. Yeah, I kind of agree with you a lot with that because I feel like the published property stuff, they're still not... The tutorials touch upon it, but they don't really cover... 
some of like the nitty gritties of data binding and things like that, that I think there should be some sort of pattern or practice on that kind of stuff because there isn't, it's really fluid right now. And I could see a lot of bad habits coming out of that. I agree completely. Apple's not helping either. They're like horrible, horrible examples that they show. Well, they're super simple stuff. Like it isn't really like heavy duty app development type stuff that's helpful to a majority of developers, right? That's true. But then all the junior devs who just coming into the platform think, oh, Apple showed this. That must be good code, right? Let's do it like that. Right. Ugh, no. <laughs> I think there needs to be like, combined super powerful and it's great, but I think there that to me is the biggest missing gap as far as the community is concerned when it comes to education, which I'm hoping to do more of because I think there's plenty of room for improvement. The other thing I wanted to cover was, and this is the talk I did at 360i Dev, was like async programming could be improved upon. Sounds like you dabbled in this as well. But like, I feel like they skipped promises and futures and just went right to combine. But I think that there's still a lot of use cases where promises and futures makes a lot of sense. And we've been dreaming about async and await forever. Mm -hmm. And I think like there's definitely a use case for that to be added to Swift as well. Right. I worked with it in Dart a little bit a long time ago when it was only Dart was only on the web. And uh, as far as I understood back then, at least with, in the Dart implementation, it was just a syntactic sugar though. It is a syntactic sugar. Like the first step that they could do is just have promises and futures. Like, because that's really what it is behind the scenes. And then async in a way is really the syntactic sugar that kind of hides that behind the scenes so it looks more more fluid or more like easy to read. And then I felt like, so they have like a future class that they added or struck and combined, but it's not really mm. a future. But like futures and promises are so much cleaner than dealing with closure or callback hell in Swift where you have this like pyramid of dune that, that you have to deal with. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, we do use promises at work and I kind of struggle with them because I, it's, we, we use promise kit. Promise kits, Google, I believe. Is that the Google one or no? Google is futures. Maybe promise kits, a different one, but they're both like fairly good. Like I liked it once I got started with it. So I can't, unit test that darn thing properly. I mean, okay. Interesting. I can, but I'll have to use expect, wait expectation thing. Right. Yep. Yep. So at the previous job, it was banned and I got used to that. We used Rx Swift and in Rx Swift, you can actually do everything synchronously in, in unit tests. So you don't need to wait. It was incredibly fast. So I'm not used to doing the wait calls now. Right. And I couldn't do that with promises because they just don't have any support for that. See, that, that to me seems like something they should improve in unit tests. Right. And not like, you know what I mean? Because like, it seems like supporting promises should be part of unit tests and the unit test infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. I'm not expecting, to be honest, I'm not expecting that from Apple. Like, giving us in combined framework, lots of support and protocols specifically, right? That's what would help for unit testing. Yeah, which doesn't make sense. There's a good tutorial out there that I'll post in the notes on how to unit test with combined. There's a caveat though. I'm, I'm a big, big, big fan of Rx Swift, so I'm biased. <laughs> That's why I'm like not a, you know, 
promises are not my cup of tea. Interesting. So is Rx, you mean you're like specifically a fan of Rx Swift, the framework or reactive Swift, the pattern? Reactive X, the pattern specifically, because it's a universal thing. Do you consider Swift UI and Combine reactive? Yes. Okay. Although Combine is not adhering to reactive X, there is a, how do they call it? Sort of like a canonical implementation convention. That's the beauty of it. Okay. And then Reactive X, RX something, RX Java, RX Swift, RX C Sharp, whatever, they all implement the same thing, which means it's exactly the same API in every language. So you learn one and then you can use it anywhere. And Combine is not adhering to that. That's what's the problem. Interesting. So what's missing out of Combine specifically, besides the fact that there are some name changes and stuff like that? I have not looked into details. I'm sorry, I can't really kind of tell you. The sort of, when I glanced at it, skimmed through it, I think it was a lot of um, published subjects, like subjects not behaving the same way and the hot, cold signals also not being behaving similarly. It's actually the same problem I had with uh, Dart, Rx uh, Dart, a few years ago. That project because Dart has a similar, they have some signals type of thing built into the language, but it behaves differently from what Rx canonical implementation is supposed to be. So that project ultimately, actually, I kind of I complained there, and they ended up renaming that project, and it's not Rx Dart anymore. It's like Streams Dart or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. Because it doesn't follow that convention. That makes total sense. Behavior specifically, right? Like it's not even just the names of methods. It's called the same, like flat map. I don't know. But mm -hmm. it's called flat map, but it doesn't do what flat map supposed. It does a slightly different thing. So like, no, not Rx. What are some other things you want to talk about when it comes to Swift? There is one problem I have with Swift, and it's maybe more with our community, how we use it which is never going to change, but that's my wish list. Protocol extensions. Okay. I had an episode about it, and then apparently someone told me this is not the right, that's not the name I should be using. That's not the protocol extension. So protocol extensions are for default implementation, right? Like you have a protocol, and then you extend it, and then declare some of the methods, and then right. if whoever adopts it does not directly implement those methods, that extension's methods will be called. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's a problem already, but a different problem. The one I don't like is where people adopt a protocol, like you have my class column protocol one, right? Mm -hmm. And then they go, they scroll down to the end of the file and then type extension my class, or rather, sorry, instead of doing it at the top of the class, they do extension my class column protocol one. And then they declare all the implementations of that protocol in that little code snippet, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have an entire episode about it, why it's bad. And the, it ultimately led to a bug, which was an Xcode or compiler or something issue, which is, yes, not the reason to sort of not do it. But my problem is code organization. Basically, when people do one, two, three, five, ten protocol extensions like that on your class, then at a glance, as you're browsing the code, you don't really know what that thing does, what roles that mm. thing plays. 
It's not at the top okay. of the file. You have to scroll through tons of code that are irrelevant because you would just want to know the protocols and the implements, right? Right. So the one use case that I see things being split up into extensions for implementations is when I have a like a UI view controller, or UI table view controller that implements several protocols and you end up with this massive file. So for one thing, I would split those up into separate files and then name the files like UI table view controller dot UI table view data source. Because like that's the use case that I see is where you want to split up implementation to like several files because I don't think any file should be too long. I don't know like if it's 500 lines, 200 lines, but like a lot of your files shouldn't be very long. And then once they get too long, that's where I might implement like an extension in order to split that up, which I totally get how like that's a little bit harder to see what that class implements. But the thing is with any extension, like you're going to allow that anyways, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and that's why I don't like extensions. I think it's a dangerous metaprogramming technique that shouldn't be really used, in a, especially on the types you're not declaring yourself. It's like you're given this thing and you're just now augmenting it. Right. That's, no, 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 no. Like have a wrapper or any decorator or any other proper design pattern. Then it's explicit. Like, oh, I'm augmenting this thing. It's not buried somewhere. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, just appear, shows up. It could be used incorrectly. Like, I totally agree. I'm not necessarily against extensions, but I could see how it could be used incorrectly. And like the implementation of various structs or classes are going to be obfuscated if you're using extensions too much. I think I was just scarred by my Ruby experience where people just go nuts in, in that in Ruby world. When it comes to like extending implementations. Yeah, metaprogramming is even more powerful and encouraged in that community. Okay. So there are benefits to it. You do have Ruby on Rails because of it. It's like magically it creates stuff for you, right? Right. But then people start writing their custom magic and then it's all hell gets loose. Yes. And I'm afraid if we keep having more goodies like that, like more metaprogramming capabilities in, in Swift, we'll have more problems too. Yep. I could see that. I could see that. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? There is one more thing. It's like, uh, it's actually sort of not my idea, uh, co-worker Daniel Hall. It was originally his idea when we talked about it a lot at some point. Instant apps on iOS. It's like kind of like what Google has, right? With their... Just add water. Android. Yeah. What? <laughs> Just oh, add yeah, right. water. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Boil it three minutes. Right? Exactly. So I honestly actually don't know like exactly how Google's or Android instant apps are implemented and done, but I know it's like this quick way to run your app without downloading the whole thing or something like that. I think Apple should do something like that for iOS because I personally have a lot of use cases where I need a one-off use an app and maybe use it in two months after that. Again, I'm not going to download it. Go into a website also doesn't make sense. Yeah. But if it's like this stripped down binary thing, that's just super quickly accessible, right? That could be a fantastic thing for the whole platform. You want to like just install an app for a brief period of time? Is that what it is? Roughly speaking, yes, because that's my pattern right now. I'm trying to cut down on um, digital sort of consumption in general. So I like turned off all the notifications on my phone and things like that. 
and lots of apps mm. I uninstall and they're not on my phone. But then once a week, I need to do something like, I don't know, a banking app. I need to check my balance, like just making it up. But yeah, yeah, totally. I get take, it. And install it for like 10 minutes, right? I check my stuff. I do work with it and then I uninstall it right away. Yeah. So also like a, this digital well-being or whatever people call it, meaning like it's not there. I'm not tempted to use it, right? The like, digital addiction is a thing. Right. I think like my use case would be like, this sounds more like a user thing than a developer thing. But the idea being like, I'll post something on social media and I'll just want to check on it for a day. And yes. then it's like, I don't really need it after that. Like I don't right. hardly go on social media. So it's like, it's kind of like my use case. It's kind of the same thing where I just need to keep tabs on something. Yeah, it's a user thing, but I can totally see how Apple could implement. Like we already have all the extensions and other targets like for watch and things like that. Mm -hmm. I can see how they could use the same model and enable like an iOS instant app thing. And then you just write a little bit of your code just for that. That's what's available via Spotlight Search, for example, right? Yeah. Maybe you can do that as part of like playgrounds too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's a great idea. One thing before we close, I want to mention that one of our guests mentioned on a previous episode, we had Guy Rambo on and we talked about independent watch apps, which I've dabbled with in-app purchases on the watch. It makes no sense to have independent watch apps without in-app purchase. Hmm. So because nobody pays for apps anymore and everybody pays for in-app purchases, it'd be nice to be able to do that on the watch itself. Hmm. <laughs> Charges you 99 cents for each heart heartbeat. Boom. Gold mine. I know. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting. It was great to have you again. Yeah. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore V underscore Bush and on LinkedIn. I think similar. I just, just search for Alex Bush. I'll, I'll show up somewhere in the US regions. And you can email me at alex at insideiosdev.com. The podcast is Inside iOS Dev, correct? Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you can find that on iTunes or whatever podcast player you are doing. Thanks again. All right. See you next time, guys. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion and my company is at Bright Digit. You can email me, leo at brightdigit.com or you can also let me know any thoughts that you have, what items you have on your wish list for next year for Swift developers. We will talk to you again and have a happy new year.